There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionizing the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by Luke Snooski, who was my mentor and facilitator in Gabo Mate's Compassionate Inquiry course I did last year, which was incredible and he was incredible. Luke is a well-being coach and a somatic therapist and he's just released the most incredible incredible book called Soma Wise, which I'm hoping that by the end of this, you'll all go out and order because it's just incredible and brilliant for coaches and therapists, I think in particular, but anyone who's going through a process of healing and particularly healing addiction. So welcome, Luke. How are you? Uh, it's, it's so good to be here and connect with you, Danny, in this way after spending an entire year together with uh, CI, Compassionate Inquiry. 
I know. I'm so used to seeing you on Zoom though with those big headphones. It's <laughs> I feel like I'm yeah. I feel like I'm in class. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I have to hold that same energy. I'll try to relax a little bit more in this context. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do. Please do. So this book, well, firstly, tell us a bit about yourself. You struggled with your own addictions, but it wasn't yeah. alcohol, it was actually pornography. Yeah. But just like Gabor says, addiction comes in so many forms and it's mm. It's more about what's sort of driving the addiction more so than the actual thing that we're addicted to sometimes. And so that's what I love about this book. It's really any addiction you can relate this book to. I think um, underlying all behaviors or problematic behaviors or addictions are similar mechanisms and certainly similar experiences and contexts beneath the surface of the actual behavior. So I think there's a lot of similarities even studies have shown between pornography and alcohol addiction. Um, however, what made what makes porn quite um, unique is, I think it's it's referred to as the AAA. It's anonymous, it's affordable, and it's accessible, right? It's um, and because of that unique aspect of porn, it makes it so ubiquitous. It's everywhere, and it can be easily hidden from the world. And so, so it's not like alcohol or cigarettes where you essentially wear the symptoms of the addiction and it might impact you financially, physically, and certainly your health. With porn, it becomes more psychological. Right? So it impacts the way you might be relating to yourself, your own emotions, um, and in my case, uh, the way a man might relate to a woman. And so for me, porn, like many, many, many men who would probably attest, in my early 20s, when I started realizing that it, it was a problem, that you sort of quit and you utilize willpower to quit. And that happens and it works only for so long. So there's several like six months, nine months. So you try to quit and willpower took me, took me, took me as long as it could, as far as it could. But there was always a crumbling uh, moment and a crumbling point because I wasn't actually addressing what was going on between uh, beneath the surface of the behavior. I was still judging porn as bad. So porn is bad, end of story. And I had to focus on quitting porn. And everything actually changed when I took the focus away from porn and started focusing on that moment of temptation, on that moment of craving. So anytime there was like an impulse in my body, it's like temptation to, hey, let's go view porn. I got really curious around what, was I, what, what I was feeling in my body. I would literally pause, tune in and ask myself like the same series or the same you know, the five, this five question series, uh, what am I stressed about? What is upsetting me? What am I angry about? What am I feeling? And I would just go through these questions, and I don't, I can't recall the fifth one at this at this point, but those were four. And I would just pause and wait to see if there was something in my body um, that resulted. And sure enough, every time there was something, whether it was like a spasm or a pain or a convulsion or a or a cramp or just something would happen, tears came. You know, there was something that my body would release. And what happened, the first maybe two weeks, I realized that that temptation was quite strong, but I was able to stay with it as long as I stayed with my body rather than going to my mind. But after that, because my curiosity just became wholly and solely focused on what was happening in my body that was driving this impulse to move towards the behavior, all of a sudden, porn disappeared effortlessly. It wasn't even an attempt to quit. It just stopped serving its purpose because I started realizing, oh, actually, I'm just feeling sad. Oh, I'm just feeling angry. Oh, I'm actually just upset about something. Oh, it's actually because I'm not speaking my mind or being assertive. So I started having these realizations and reflections about myself. 
And in fact, the best part, the most beautiful aspect for me was as I moved away from porn, this, this self-soothing protector that had been with me since five years old, and you know, anyone that buys the book will read about that story. Um, what I started realizing was the overarching pattern that was um, influencing my life that porn was an intricate part of. So if it wasn't for abstaining and completely removing myself from porn, I wouldn't be able to see um, who I was being and how I was relating to other women in relationships. So I was able to sort of see this broad, big picture perspective of the patterns that I was going through, these cyclical patterns of my relationships where there was, um, you know, meeting, meeting a, a, a new a new partner for a relationship and it was so easy to abstain from porn then from porn because there was endorphins and there was euphoria and there was connection and physical intimacy and all the all the things that go along with that honeymoon period of a relationship but then about three to six months later when the endorphins settle and it's time to be real i'd never learned how to communicate my emotions i'd never learned emotional vulnerability i didn't know how to express myself or assertively communicate uh, my own needs so then all of a sudden I didn't know how to say no when I went when I meant no. I didn't know how to say yes when I meant yes. And then when things did get conflictive or there was any kind of tension that did arise in a relationship, well, I don't know how to express that. So instead, I would passively, passively, aggressively sort of rebel against my partner, and I'd go watch porn. But that one instance turned into, you know, another instance and another instance, and that that started eroding the trust in the relationship. It started eroding the, um, the intimacy and the connection in the relationship. And all of a sudden it started this, this slow downward spiral that always led to the demise of the relationship. And all of this would happen in these cyclical two-year two -year patterns. And I went through six two-year cycles and that space away from the substance, that space, uh, that curiosity around what was happening allowed me to bring that into full perspective. And, you know, I, I don't know if I, any more details are warranted around that, but that's that's sort of what comes to mind now. That's amazing. But what I I sit here and I was like, wow, like the similarities with alcohol are just so like it's it's incredible. Like the way it corrodes away at the trust, I guess within the relationships that you're in, but also that most important one, that relationship with ourselves. And there's you know one thing that I talk about in my coaching, and this obviously comes from the work that we did in Compassionate Inquiry was being with your body, really tuning in with your body to see what's present for you and what it is that you're actually needing when you're having a craving, when the shit hits the fan and you just want to go for the fucking wine quicker than, you know, all the porn or whatever it is. But, you know, we've, we've become so disconnected and you talk about that in, in the book where you say, you know, that you talk about the great disconnect and you said, we don't see that the, the habits we don't see that the habits that continue to repeat themselves and are expression of our body's commitment to healing old patterns. Why does this keep happening to me is more accurately reframed as this situation is creating yet another opportunity to explore what needs healing within me. I love that, Luke, because it's rather than feeling like a failure, it's like here's an opportunity to learn more about myself. Oh, and it's and it's also symbolic and representative of the body's constant drive towards healing and thriving your body wants nothing more than to heal and every time we have this impulse we, you know you hear it all the time why do i keep finding myself in this relationship why do i why do i keep doing this to myself 
And it could actually, again, be reframed as here it is again, the body's letting you know there's something here and it's an opportunity to relate to it in a different way. If we stop judging and condemning the behavior, we can look beneath it and say, well, this behavior that I'm judging in my case, porn has actually been healing in, in terms of protecting me from a pain that I have been unconsciously unaware of for years and years and well, in fact, decades. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I liken that obviously with the alcohol cravings. So for me, it was very much uh, being uncomfortable in social situations and feeling not good enough and all those sort of typical things. And I didn't like the feeling. I didn't realize it then, but I was just going glug, 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 just getting shit faced. And because I felt so uncomfortable, but I didn't realize it because I had, I'd never been taught on, I never knew how to tune into my feelings in my body or the signals my body was trying to show me. That seems to be one of the, the one of the missing ingredients in many modalities, though, Danny, is this is this how do I actually do it? We're told to feel, we're told to feel our emotions, but many people don't know how to because very, very early in life they learned to disconnect. And no one teaches us how to feel emotions. We can talk about them, we might use words, but to actually feel them and to get to know the specific sensations and how our body expresses all of this, all the, you know, the myriad of emotions that we have access to, no one teaches that. So that was my intention with SomoWise was the practical tools, techniques, and strategies that people can actually use that, hey, this is possible. This is the bridge that takes you out of your head and into your body so that you can learn the difference between when your mind is speaking and when your body is speaking. And you learned this in CI where someone might be saying, I feel exploited. I feel manipulated. And they're, and they're using very powerful words. But in essence, when we say manipulated and exploited, those are perceptions. That's the mind that's speaking. So as a somatic therapist, when I do hear my clients speaking and they're using language that's coming from the mind, I know that they're not actually connected to what they're feeling in their body. So this is this process is really about being able to not only connect to the body, but that that is truly evidence in the language that we use when we do articulate our inner experience. So so we can't hide our beliefs and we can't hide the source from which we're speaking from. And and one one thing I might say is that when the mind is speaking, there's always some subjectivity. When the body is speaking, it's in pure objective sensation words. In other words, there's pain, there's anger, there's there's a tingling, there's a buzzing, there's these words that um, we can't really argue or debate with. But if I told someone I was being exploited, well, uh, my guess is that a lot of people can debate and argue different sides and perspectives to my perception of being exploited or manipulated in a certain situation. It's like, it's like you say in the book too, that the mind, I don't know the exact words it used, but here's the Danny Carr way of saying it. The mind talks a lot of shit sometimes. You say the body doesn't lie. And, you know, you talk about tense. So one thing I think for people, especially when there's that craving for alcohol or that thing is coming up, you know, that thing is coming up, this, oh, I'm feeling angry or anxious or I'm coming home from work and I'm feeling like I've had a rough day and I don't know how to relax myself. And you say here, tension and agitation let us know immediately if something is right or wrong, the body is giving us this, this feedback from moment to moment. So the body is constantly telling us, like you say, the body never lies. It's constantly telling us we need to pay attention. Yeah. And when we're not paying attention to those internal cues of tension and agitation, then all of a sudden the stories that the mind comes up with in response to those sensation 
become the believable outlets. So the mind now has a thought of reaching for a glass of wine or reaching for alcohol or whatever it may be, or porn. And then it does that automatically because the thought is, is thought to be, the thought is thought to be the solution. But all it is, is the thought, the mind is saying, hey, something's happening. Pay attention. There's tension. There's agitation here. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's um, so just to give an example for people listening, so I don't want to lose people, but say you're driving home from work, this is what I'm thinking, and you've had a really rough day at work and maybe a couple of people have been rude to you and you're driving home and you're feeling agitated, but you're not even maybe even tuned into that, but you're feeling like, I want to drink, I want to drink, but you start telling yourself in your head, I fucking hate that place or no one respects me and no one likes me or you know, those sort of stories that we can start to tell ourselves because yes. we're trying to match the feeling yes. that's actually in the body. Yes. Yeah. So the... can you speak to, sorry, mm-hmm. I just jumped in. No, that's there. all right. No, ahead. Be that person for me. Like be that person that's driving home from work and they're feeling like no one likes them or, you know, and they're wanting to go for the drink, but they haven't tuned into their body yet. So what happens is that the stories of the mind become believable and it becomes the reality of our experience rather than just a possibility, right? That the stories of our mind are a reaction to something that is happening in the body. So um, in the book, I talk about um, Dimasio's um, somatic hypothesis, I believe. Even I've, I've been tuned into my own book. So I'm, I'm somatic marker theory or somatic marker hypothesis, essentially that there's a sensation that occurs on the body before cognition. So in other words, the mind is one step behind the action because the mind is emerging as, with a thought one step after there's a sensation on the body. So we feel, and then we think. So if we're driving home and there's agitation, or we're not connected to ourselves, or we're not connected to their body. All of a sudden we have a thought and it's of alcohol or porn, or whatever it may be. And so we think that that's the solution to this tension or agitation that we might be subconsciously perceiving. So we reach for that. The problem is, it's not the solution. It's just it's just a, a story that's signaling us to say, hey, pay attention, something's happening in the body that needs attention and presence. So here, so this agitation and tension doesn't actually get solved. It stays in the body, but the behavior that we choose numbs us and soothes us temporarily. So then again, we continue living. All of a sudden, the effects of our chosen substance or behavior wears off. And guess what? The tension, the agitation is still there. And then the cycle continues because we're looking in the wrong direction. It's like, imagine this is, this is hopefully this is a nice way of, of describing it. Imagine that your body's on fire. There's a fire in your body and there's smoke in front of your eyes and it's really hard to see and it's irritating on eyes. And you're trying to fan away the discomfort of the smoke by fanning away the, the smoke in front of your eyes. So you fan away the smoke and only a few seconds later, there's more smoke that's uncomfortable. And every time you try fanning away, no matter how much effort you use, there's still smoke in front of your eyes because we're not seeing that the source of the smoke is this fire within us. Yes, that's so, yeah, so true. And so if someone tunes, okay, so say then said person is hearing this on the podcast and they're driving home from work, they're like, okay, I'm listening to these two. It's kind of, kind of getting it. It's kind of making sense. What do we do with it? Mm. We've tuned into the body. We've felt this agitation mm. rising or tightness in our chest perhaps. Mm. What do we do from that point? And CI, and maybe Gobbler came up with this term, but feeling is healing. When we allow ourselves to yeah. fully feel something, we, we experience something that we sub- subconsciously don't even understand exists. Because when we learned to disconnect from our emotions, 
we were small children. And as small children, we don't understand the concept of time because that is an advanced concept for a more adult developed brain to be able to comprehend that there's, there's, there's this thing called time and there's this thing called minutes, days, hours, years, and we can cognitively work around this abstract concept. To a child, however, time is eternal. It's just the ever present now. So if a child never has had the experience to experience sadness or pain, to know that there is a peak and to know that there's eventual dropping and a passing away and a, and a, yes, and a passing away of this experience, their body, when, it, when the, they experience this pain, to them, they feel or they perceive that this is going to last forever. This is, this is no bueno. This is going to be here for good. So because we don't have the experiential evidence of the arising peak and passing away of the emotion, it's hard for us to comprehend that that all that's required is for us to feel the sensation. And I think in the world of, of alcohol as well, and I did, I learned about this at, at the University of Auckland in the drug, during my post-grad dip in uh, drug and alcohol studies, urge surfing, right? That's called urge surfing. This is, this is what it means to urge surf, to be present for that wave as it peaks and then passes away. And, and to really, if we really wanna get out of our head and get into our body and not believe the stories of the mind, the, this is really hard because the mind wants to do something and control the situation where the opposite is true if we want relief from the experience, which is to simply feel, to let it um, run its course. And here's the thing. This is easier said than done. And this is not to say that um, everyone's going to be able to feel their urges and feel their pain and feel anything at all um, the first time they try to do it. This is why it's really important to have resources. What are the things that we know that we can gift, I gift our body? I call healthy lifestyle choices gifts to our body. So within my own tool belt, when I know that my body's stressed, yeah, my intention is to sit with it. My intention is to be with it. But I also know there's sort of a capacity, like, you know what, right now, it's, I'm not going to sit with it fully. There's, it's going to be more appropriate for me to do a workout or do an ice bath, or do a sauna, or do a massage, or go swimming. And I know that I have this tool belt that I've accumulated full of different practices that allow me to um, give my body rather than my mind. So I'm not believing the story of the mind. I'm actually doing something for my body, which is a very direct, very different direction in terms of how we're intervening with ourselves. This isn't a psychological approach. This is a somatic approach. So we know that movement and exercise is listed for pretty much every single mental health and addiction in terms of a positive resource for healing, thriving, and recovery. So here we are utilizing it as a gift to soothe our body's needs so that way we don't have to, um, again, deal with the constant psychological disturbance of it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. I love also too, when you got into the book, The Lifestyle Choices, which we'll get yeah. to in a minute as well, because they were fantastic. So going on into the book, you talk about change and how change is hard and I love this concept I posted something similar about it the other day but you say change is hard but health habits choices addictions and behavioral patterns don't have to be life sentences mm. the answer we seek requires us to travel a path that points inwards I love that so it's really like for me breaking that down it's like we you know we don't have to be imprisoned by these things but rather you know, go going internal to find out what it is. And it's that same thing, isn't it? It's that listening yes. to the body and what is it that we're needing and where does this belief perhaps come from that's driving me to go and drink? 
when we're self-soothing with alcohol, we often think it's just because I'm pissed off and I need to relax. But there's always more layers to yes. it than that, you know? Absolutely. Not only is it more layers, but this is a, a, a journey, a lifelong journey that, conti- that continues to or continuously peels away layers. And, and I, in the book, I talk about in the introduction, like when we first start this journey of healing, it can seem quite superficial, right? Oh, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to start this workout plan. And the deeper we go, the deeper we look, all of a sudden we're utilizing and engaging in practices that are going deeper and deeper to our core, where we actually do end up at a space where we are questioning core beliefs that we never thought, firstly, we never were aware of. And secondly, we never thought that we would articulate to say the words, I am not good enough, or something is wrong with me to come into contact with powerful core beliefs that may have been governing our decision-making and may have been um, influencing how we perceive ourselves in the world, that takes time. And it takes a lot of, I call it, you have to have that subtle hint of masochism within yourself because it's an uncomfortable journey inward, right? So we have to get comfortable with discomfort. That's why we talk, that's why I talk about change being hard, because if we want to move away from the automatic conditioned patterns of our nervous system and our behaviors in our mind, guess what? That's going to require us to drop into a sense of stillness, to to counteract and sort of soothe and unravel that reactivity. And that's not a comfortable process. Um, To resist a conditioned behavior is not a pleasant experience, you know, so as anyone listening would, would know. So it takes a lot of, it takes a very holistic effort. It doesn't, it's not just simply the mind saying, okay, I'm going to quit. There's so many things that go into the equation. And the more we can respect and honor just how interconnected this, this, this formula of change is, I think it's easier for people to manage the process of change um, without falling into the, oh, I failed again mentality and actually going two steps back. And I think that that's one of the, you know, SOMOIS is about this journey into the body, but each chapter almost represents a different way that change is possible and that change is influenced by the way that we're relating to and connecting with our body. Yeah, absolutely. And it does take time. You know, it takes a lot of time. Like I haven't been drinking for five years, but probably this deeper work that I'm doing on myself really started with the CI course and and learning all about that kind of stuff and really understanding what it means to connect to your body. And so even the other day I had uh, something just really pissed me off that someone did on social media and it hit my stuff in a massive way because long story but my initial reaction was to go send a a, you know a fuck you text (laughs) to them (laughs) and I I was like no don't do that because I do that stuff and I get myself into a pickle but previously I would have drunk and so through that through that discomfort and I probably still would have sent the pissed off text anyway but so rather than do anything I just sat and really felt in my body and I was really naming it like Okay, I'm feeling tightness in my chest right now. Yes. You know, I could feel this tingling. It's going down my arms and really followed it through with my body. Mm. I went and laid down for a bit, took some deep breaths and just tried to recognize the part of me that was feeling the hurt because it was actually, I felt hurt because I felt not considered. <laughs> it always comes back to that with me or not good enough or not important. And so rather than do anything, I just really looked after that that part of me that needed yeah. that. And it was so good. I didn't text this person in the end, even though I wrote them twice and then deleted it. 
and just let it be. Like mm. it's nothing to do with me what someone else does or doesn't acknowledge. It doesn't matter. It's it's all about my own reaction to it. And that's one great thing you taught us in in the CI. It was just it's never really about anyone else what's mm. going on. It's about our own reactions to it. And it, that sort of stuff takes a long time. Like, Absolutely. But what a yeah. beautiful, you've modeled and you've really described what that journey could look like where when we first move away, when we move away from the behavior that we've, we've, we've seen isn't serving us anymore. Um, it can be um, a challenging experience at first because we're forced to feel everything that that behavior was numbing us from. So for you to experience that pain, um, is pretty much par for the course that a lot of people have and will have to face when they're going through this process of change and they are no longer wanting to use their self-soothing behavior as a crutch, whether it's porn, alcohol, whatever it may be. And now to, to have that, the experience and the curiosity to find these practices that work for you is also such a gift. I spoke about resources and you've just described somewhere that that spending time with yourself, breathing, going and taking some time out, um, even allowing yourself to express but not send. A lot of these things allow us to feel what's happening and explore and reflect the space, right? The space of reflection is so important. Um, and I think at the end of the day, yes, I think you've also stumbled upon something that um, I would say represents a, a residue of people pleasing when we when we, we when we get upset that someone holds an opinion that disagrees um, with our own, especially when it's about us. So when someone holds an opinion of us that we don't agree with and we don't like, whew, that can be quite painful. And for me specifically, and maybe others, this is when that impulse for people pleasing really kicks in or kicked in, where hey, this person thinks ill of me. I need to fix this opinion because that's not who I am. And I love how you are able to sit with the discomfort of letting another person and describing this process beautifully, um, sitting with the discomfort of allowing another person to have an opinion of you or something that you may have done that doesn't, agree, that doesn't align with your own, that isn't as positive as you might like it to be. And that to me is how we extinguish some of that, um, some of that reactivity and feed a different belief. Like you said that, you know what, I, I'm fine as I am. Oh, absolutely. And also another thing that came up for me in that I shouldn't need people to act and be in a certain way for me to be okay. And that was yeah. a big one too, because that's that's just really having to control everyone to be the exact way I need them to be so that I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that doesn't marry up with life as it is and being in a relationship <laughs> with people. And yeah. we would just be in a total state of like ah, sending it's angry a, text messages yeah. all the time and being well, pissed. It'd be more than a full-time job, but it require a lot of personal <laughs> assistance to try to convince the yeah. whole world that you are a certain person in a certain way, rather than um, being okay, letting others sort of have their authenticity, whatever that may sound or be like. Yeah, absolutely. So true. So, okay. So I wanted to talk about the six fundamental healthy lifestyle <laughs> principles in the book, which fucking fantastic. Um, you've said, you know, to um, to go to have an approach that's holistic yes. and especially in recovery, we need real food, mm. movement, rest and recovery, lifelong learning. I love that. Community and love. Yeah. That's so awesome. Can you give us a quick rundown on those? So I'll give, is it okay if I give a bit of background of how please. those emerge? So I yes, was, please. I was a, I had a wellness studio in Santa Monica 
California. And I was a personal trainer, nutritionist, massage therapist. I had a bit of a studio and I had a team there. And no matter, no matter how many clients I saw, what I started noticing was that no single diet worked for all of them. No single movement strategy moved for all of them. No single anything moved for, worked for all of them. So I started looking at what was the what were the similarities, what were the find it foundational pieces that were present in all of these success stories, and this this is what emerged was these six healthy lifestyle principles, and it was also at a time where you know Santa Monica is like the mecca of of health and wellness in a, in a lot of different circles, and um, here's you know at a time where CrossFit is debating with yoga and everyone's touting and proclaiming their own supremacy and their own methods as being the best, and and I'm like. All, all these modalities and approaches and philosophies actually have a lot more similarities than differences. And that's what I wanted to focus on was these similarities, these principles. So I took these principles, I obviously wrote, wrote about them, but I also traveled around the world to show that there are a million ways to live. All we have to do is really, and so this is where the term be your own guru came from. It wasn't as refined of a message as it is now in terms of how to really listen to your body to apply these principles. But where these six principles have now evolved to is that they create the environment of health and healing. So they're the starting point, not only to, so if we're trying to move towards a space of healing, we want to support our body to heal and thrive. And in order to do that, we want to remove as many of the stressful inputs that we're putting in. So if we have a highly sedentary lifestyle, we have a diet that's full of inflammatory foods, we're not sleeping. All of a sudden, if we change our lifestyle, many of our symptoms that we were experiencing psychologically will be soothed simply as a result of changing the input that we're putting into our body through our lifestyle. Lifestyles. Another example is um, I, I know a doctor who won't see a client or a patient, won't see a patient until they've gone three months of a gluten-free, dairy-free, moving and exercising and getting right to, the right sleep because they said, whatever is there that hasn't cleared up naturally through lifestyle, then we'll address that. But until that happens, we're wow. not going to, so let's like, let's, let's, let's clear out what it could potentially be lifestyle related and then see what's left over. Let's see the residue that's still there afterwards. So it's quite a powerful approach um, to be applying. And I tend to agree. So imagine someone that's saying they're anxious. Well, if someone's drinking eight cups of coffee a day, I can guarantee you they're going to find many things to be anxious about. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we start, stop giving the body these inputs, these consumptions that are actually influencing our lived psychological experience, all of a sudden we start seeing that, hey, actually this thing we call a lifestyle is impacting us more than we think and more than we know. And the reason I call it lifestyle rather than a workout plan or a diet plan is because the whole lifestyle counts. And every moment from moment to moment with every breath we take, every glass of water we drink, every, every, every moment is either moving us towards or away from an optimal balanced state of health. So it's it's more than just, oh, I got my workout in today. But if the rest of the day is full of stress, lack of sleep, a poor diet, it's not gonna do a lot to offset that total inflammatory stress equation. So for me, this environment of health and healing is about putting the body in an environment that will allow us to then more easily move away from these addictions and these behaviors. Wow, absolutely. Yeah, because if you don't, if you, I know myself, if I'm, you know, fall off the wagon of, of good, of eating good food and all the rest, of it, I just feel shitty. I don't sleep yeah. well. I just feel sluggish. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah. well, you're also, you're also, you're, you're tapping into something that's really important is that one 
one lifestyle impacts the rest. So when we move, we also sleep better. When we eat healthy, we also have more energy and sleep better. So all of a sudden, these lifestyle choices on their own, we know they're healthy. Science has shown that. But when you start combining them, then you start seeing this exponential benefit growing from combining um, the more we focus on on lifestyle as a process rather than this, this prescription, or I just have to do this, this, and this. No, it's rather it's how you're actually... Um, behaving and living from the moment you wake up till the moment you go to sleep and then how you sleep from the moment you fall asleep till you wake up so every moment is actually contributing so true even uh, i've been i've just finished a meditation and breathwork teacher training course and we've been going hard on on yoga nidra and uh, you know body awareness and stillness since doing that and just doing it so regularly i am really noticing coffee in my body and I said to my husband, Ash, I, I can't do coffee anymore. Like just I normally have a coffee in the morning, go down the beach. And I've had to switch it out just to a chai for now until I sort of wean down to something else but or just water because I'm really feeling it because I'm so much more connected with my body and having so much moments of stillness. And, mm. yeah, so I think that also comes along with tuning in with your body more. Um, what a beautiful insight. And I think the listeners should really write that one down because it's almost like a disclaimer. When it comes to connecting mm. to the body, as we become still and listen to the body's language, don't expect sunshines and butterflies and peaceful, you know, that's it's not going to be peace and harmony at the beginning. Because as we um, begin to feel again, we feel everything and we feel everything more acutely and more sensitively. So it actually makes us more sensitive to our emotions and sensitive to our experience. So there's this acclimation process. Again, this is why we said that we talked about change being uncomfortable. When we come back to the body and we start inviting this change, ooh, it's it's a hum, it's a I call it a humbling experience because even though the mind's intention is to create change and stop a certain behavior, stop a certain self-soothing, uh, self-soothing coping mechanism, all of a sudden when we are actually faced with how strong and powerful these urges are that it, it, to me, especially, I can only speak from experience. It brought me to my knees to say, wow, I, I actually don't stand a chance against how strong these impulses are. So it, it made, it put me, it sort of humbled me and put me in my place in terms of how much I respect what's happening in the body and how it actually drives and dictates my behaviors. Once I started paying attention to how strong these impulses were. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I talk about with people in my course, and, and you touched on it as well in the book, is moments of like acknowledging what you're feeling. So this is how I'd say for people also to tune in, acknowledge. And I'm just trying to remember what you said in the book. You say acknowledge, accept, and allow. Mm, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it, it's, mm. and, and it's and it's the words. What I like about the words that we're using is that we can plug in any word Again, the mind is telling stories. We can plug in the word that we want to use, whether it's observation, surrender, faith, trust, acceptance, compassion, love, allowing, opening, welcoming. A lot of these words have very similar connotations. <clears throat> but at the core of it is this bodily experience, this internal posture of, am I okay? Can I practice being okay with this experience being here without trying to avoid it? without trying to run from it, without trying to do anything at all of it, anything at all around it, other than just feel it. Can I just feel this while it's here? Oh God, it's just life-changing. It's so life-changing. It's incredible, isn't it? Just to, yeah. just to sit with what's showing up for us. And, you know, as soon as we, I talked about this in the podcast a bit, but as soon as we acknowledge what's showing up for us and try to be with it and shine a light on it, it loses its grip. 
oh, it's a beautiful way of putting it, Denny. Mm. I, I, there's, it's the healing power of expression. And I talk about this in the relationship chapter. There's so much, when we just think about change, it's not real. It's imaginary. We can think about all the strategies in the world. Mm. When we express something, even just verbally, when we, we are, when we live our change through our behaviors and through our actions and through our words, we make that change real because now it exists on the physical lev level rather than just a thought of change or an intention of change. So when you say take ownership and accountability, I couldn't agree more because the way you describe um, that process with emotions is exactly how I moved away from porn and my own emotional uh, awareness as well, to just take full accountability of what was happening and just expressing it. And it's so incredible. I find this when I work with people too, even when people are really scared to go into their body mm -hmm. and we start to go there and we realize even when we find the emotion and we shine a light on it and we're just with it and it diminishes pretty much always that, wow, I did it. I did sit with this discomfort and I was okay. Yeah. It's like, yes, yeah, 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 you're okay. The reality is usually far less severe and intense than the mind's story about it. So when we actually yes. touch our, when we actually touch our pain, yes, it's uncomfortable, but what tends to be the afterthought or the after, uh, the after sort of expression is, oh, was that it? Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that that's what all that was there because we realize that what we, we've been spending so much effort and energy to avoid this expression, the sensation. And when we actually touch that sensation, of course, it's not pleasant. Of course, it's uncomfortable, but it's far less of a monster than our mind thought it was going to be. It's really quite incredible. It's really incredible. You know, we're just growing so accustomed to avoiding the problems that, that show up. We're so not used to it. We're just, oh, I feel this. I don't want to feel it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to step out of this mm -hmm. and I've got this one underlined asterisk <laughs> exclamation mark. So I'm just going to have to read it. Okay. So you've said here, and this is in the part where it's, everybody's doing the dance. Mm -hmm. You've said we've grown accustomed to avoiding our problems, distracting ourselves from the bitter truth of the present moment. As a result, we cannot stand the slightest discomfort. <sighs> I'm not finished. We <laughs> think life is about creating safety and security and pursuing contentment, but life comprises of, of a combination of pleasure and pain, satisfaction and suffering, delight and difficulty. We need both. Mm. Oof, not finished. By <laughs> focusing only on a comfort, we cut ourselves off from the full range of human experiences, as well as the knowledge, skills and qualities that blossom when embracing the full spectrum of emotions. Far out. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. So good, Luke. I'm just like, fuck. Well, it comes down to this. We we say if we if we only want to experience pleasure, happiness, and peace, and we only and we decide that those are the only acceptable experiences that we are going to allow, then not only are we going to cut ourselves off from the bad stuff because we'll avoid it at all costs, we'll actually also be cutting ourselves off from the very thing that we want most, which is that absolute um, contentment and joy of the present moment. So one of the things about this journey inward into the body is, yes, it's uncomfortable, but when we truly allow our these expressions of upsetness and pain, sadness and fear to, to be processed by the body, we open ourselves up to the possibility of what actual authentic joy 
peace and and happiness actually feel like and it, it allows us to savor life more everything every moment tastes better meals time with loved ones because we're no longer in our heads ruminating in an imaginary sort of make-believe place we're here and we're now and and soma wise you know the sort of the tagline that i probably mentioned a couple times is that this journey back into self for me it 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 wasn't about being enlightened. It wasn't about any personal mastery. It was, I wanted to be better at my own life. I have these relationships that define my life. I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother, and I want to, and I'm, and I'm a partner. And I want to be, I want to be good for these people. I want to, I want these relationships to, to matter for them to be fulfilling and rich and meaningful. And, um, and, that's what it's about for me. And so again, my relationships, my present moment relationships as a result also become a bit of a barometer for me. So when there's tension, agitation in these relationships, the first thing I do is, hey, say, you know what, what am I not giving myself and my body right now that's causing this experience? Because if I'm not tending to my body, then my relationships start crumbling as well. Oh God, absolutely. I love that. Um, becoming better at my own life. And that is becoming better at your own life, isn't it? To actually experience all the stuff that happens yeah. and, and realizing too, this is one thing I'm really working on with people at the moment is that it's like, it makes sense to feel sadness when something sad happens. And it makes sense to feel angry when you're pissed off about something. And usually whatever we're feeling is the, it's the appropriate <laughs> response for what's happened so if you know if someone's died and we're feeling really sad it's appropriate to feel sad yes. it wouldn't be right to not feel sad and so to sit in the sadness it, it's so beautiful even though yeah. it's painful but it yeah. lets it process rather than going and get yourself wasted yeah. wasted to yeah. not deal with it because that's sad yeah. like you said earlier the sadness is still there the next yeah. day or yeah. you know so it's really i can't drive this home enough just yeah. to be able to sit with with what is um it's it's life-changing yeah there's a there's a quote that might sum up what you're saying is it okay if i share that please that, that pain in life is unavoidable but the pain of avoiding the pain is avoidable <laughs> I, I read that one today in the book i was like <laughs> yeah. yes that got underlined as well <laughs> it's lit up like a Christmas tree this yeah. book yeah. look and one of the main things I really you know there's so many takeaways and I haven't even scratched the surface of all these things I've got underlined and want to ask you about but unfortunately we don't have 10 days to do this you know interview <laughs> but you know you said here and I love this and this is really this is a really good point for people dealing with alcohol issues where you said the problem we are trying to get rid of was once a solution mm -hmm. for other pain or discomfort. When we find and integrate what we've been avoiding, the solution won't be necessary anymore. So it's really, I think, recovery or freeing ourselves from addiction is really trying to figure out what is that discomfort that we're trying to avoid. It's not really, I mean, it is to do with the alcohol because the, the alcohol we've been using to soothe ourselves or yes. to, to alleviate the discomfort. But it's not just when we just try and, okay, I'll just stay away from alcohol, stay away from alcohol, stay away from it. It's, yes. We're just using willpower. And like you say in the book, that runs out eventually. Yes. Eventually that wanes because we're not dealing with the core of it. So could you just speak to that a little bit? Yes, because you're actually tapping on something that's highly important and, 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 it, and it summarizes or really um, points at the difference between um, living in the mind or the body. So let's say that we... Um, quit porn or alcohol 
and we focus on it as the problem rather than the protector to something that was a deeper issue. If we do that, what tends to happen is that we find a substitute behavior. When I did my PhD research and I was working with pornography addicts, one of the participants um, all of a sudden substituted um, porn for YouTube. And so now he's browsing two or three hours of YouTube a day and he sees it as a success. And of course, I don't have any judgment. I'm just an academic studying this, but I know that um, what I'm seeing is the emergence of a substitute behavior that's taking the place of porn and it's now serving the same function of avoiding a pain that's actually deeper to the to the problem. And this happens when we focus on the behavior as a problem. And the same thing might happen with alcohol where some people might find a substitute addiction. Um, it might be cigarettes, it might be something else, energy drinks, whatever it may be. Chocolate. For me, chocolate, yeah, chocolate. Mm. For, for me, it was sports content, right? So porn disappears and all of a sudden, I'm on ESPN and I'm noticing that I'm browsing and looking at sports content as if it's like a, a, a drama to be played out um, like a soap opera sort of thing. So again, it, it required me to say, well, what's actually going on here? What is going on beneath the surface of this? And the more that I was aware and the more honest I was, right? So here's this, this, this ruthless honesty that's required to say, what did I, what did I, what did I, what am I giving up? And did I accidentally pick something else up to substitute this thing? And if I did, then we know that, okay, well, now it's just about sort of peeling back the layers and removing the shells until we get to the core of our experience, when we're actually touching the emotion and being with the experience in our body. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I do find that sometimes where people will substitute alcohol, say, for, for sugar, and then that sugar that then becomes a sugar addiction. And I think as well, that's about stuffing down, you know, shoving down yes. and um, which sort of marries up with alcohol as well. So it really is finding what is that discomfort that sits within us mm -hmm. and learning to just be with that or give that yeah. what it needs. And yeah. yeah. And everyone's, every person's journey back to that discomfort is unique and contextually mm. their own, right? So everyone has a different journey back to whether it's through therapy, whether it's through something like compassionate inquiry, whether it's through simply somatic practices, whether it's through plant medicine, whatever it may be that allows people to sort of take that journey inward back to connecting with oneself. There isn't a specific timeline. There isn't a specific path. There isn't anything other than our own curiosity that guides this journey. And again, our own level of curiosity desire and and really motivation right so so we have to want to do this because if we don't want to do it it's going to be really challenging to feel the discomfort involved with this process and not shy away or turn away from it so um, it really is this this delicate balance of leaning in and allowing some of these experience to be felt and processed um, at a degree and pace that is comfortable and capable for for each person yeah, absolutely. And also knowing that we don't get it right all the time, no. first time, you know, and people yeah. relapse or they'll mm. go and eat a ton of chocolate or there's all different ways that shows up. And I think it's really important to stay compassionate towards mm. yourself and know wow. that it's a journey, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a long journey. We don't yeah. always get it right the first time. I think you could have written my chapter on radical self-acceptance because this is exactly what I talk about. And and one of the sections in that book that I can probably summarize here and you'll resonate with is that the mind doesn't get to determine the rate of change because to the mind, mm. the mind, the, to the mind, change is instant. 
right? Your mind, you can change your mind at a moment's notice. And if we compare our actual progress to the expectations of our mind, we're always going to be disappointed. We're always going to be disappointed. We weren't purely absent because in our mind, abstinence is easy, but to our body, abstinence is not easy. And so when we move away from these behaviors and we find ourselves lapsing and relapsing, it's the judgment that actually perpetuates the next cycle of reactivity. Perfect. And if, if, if we learn to practice acceptance and compassion for those moments of and infuse understanding and say, you know what, this is actually just one of my protectors and it's doing its job in protecting me. And this was a moment where I wasn't able to be with this experience and the protector kicked in. And to have that awareness and knowledge and understanding of, hey, this is this is okay and I'm okay. And this is, doesn't, doesn't mean that I'm a failure or not good, as a per, not good enough as a person, but it allows us to infuse just a little bit of change because um, change doesn't just happen when we don't do something. We can actually impact the cycle of change even after we've done it by infusing radical self-acceptance and compassion to, with ourselves. Oh, yes, that's awesome. Absolutely fucking awesome. So true, Luke. So well said. Just having compassion, you know, absolutely. Yeah. And I honestly believe that a relapse can be a, our greatest teacher. Yes. Mm-hmm. Again, I think we're circling back to the very beginning of our discussion is every <laughs> time we cycle through an experience, we can either view it as something wrong or bad, or we can view it as, hey, my body is giving me yet another opportunity to heal, yet another opportunity to relate to and respond to this moment in a different way so every time the cyclical the cycle emerges it's just a new and fresh possibility oh my god it's nearly bringing me to tears because i just hope everyone can really take this in and and try and apply this to themselves because people are so hard on themselves Mm -hmm. with this stuff and it's 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 not what's required for the healing you know it's like you say, it just keeps perpetuating the cycle. Okay, we'll finish up in a second. But I um two things. When you said in the radical self-acceptance chapter, saying yes to our sensations and saying yes to our emotions and beliefs. I love that. So rather than saying, oh no, I don't want to feel you. And I know we're sort of probably repeating ourselves a bit here, but again, I just love that concept of like, yes, saying yes to it. And now I have mentioned this before on the podcast, but before we did our CI, the big one year course, I did like a like a few weekends CI course with Gabor and Satdaram. And uh, I don't know if you're in that, but I got to have a one-on-one with Gabor and I was talking about a knot I had in my stomach. And it was around about the time my dad's cancer had come back and my mum's drug addiction had kicked in and I was just a nervous wreck. And so I had this knot in my stomach. Like, and Anyway, and so I got to have a one-on-one with Gabor and I said, oh, look, I, I do yoga, I meditate, I'm at the beach every day and mm. I just can't get rid of this fucking knot in my stomach. I don't know what to do. And he's like, why are you trying to get rid of a part of yourself? He's trying to tell you something. I'm like, what? I'm thinking, hang on, I don't know if this guy's heard me right. <laughs> and he starts asking me these questions and I'm like, I don't really know how to answer this. But what he was saying is something keeps knocking at your door and you keep shutting the door on them they're going to keep coming back. And, and why is that? And I said, oh, stupidly, I said, because they're trying to get in. He said, no, they're trying to get your attention. They're trying to say, I'm here. You need to attend to me. So he said, so rather than trying to make it wrong, see what you can learn from it and just try being with it and see what happens. I'm telling you, Luke, 
my husband can attest to this, I would get the most crippling knots in my stomach that I would start to get scared. I was going to get stomach cancer. And they were so bad around this time. I would be doubled over and like, oh, the pain was intense. And sometimes it would go for weeks. And after that conversation with Gabor and, and we sat with it for a bit and it went, do you know, I've never had one since. Yeah. And oh my God, it was like, I'm like, is that all that talk? And like, as soon as he said, why are you trying to get rid of a part of yourself? It's just trying to show you something. And yeah. And occasionally it pops up, but then it goes pretty quickly because I, I know what to do now. And it was like, that's why I went on and did the, the compassionate inquiry course. I'm like, this guy is really onto something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's and amazing. I think, yeah. And you're, you're really just articulating a lot of the things we've been talking about today, yeah. that, that allowing, that accepting, that allowing the body to process and integrate. And I guess what you're also tapping into something that might be important to say is that we don't lean on our practices of yoga, meditation, cold exposure, whatever it may be. If we engage in those practices, it doesn't mean that we get rid of the pain. It doesn't mean we get to to, to sidestep this mm. painful process of feeling our emotions and feeling our pain. What we can consider it rather than a cure is a preparation. This is the preparatory mm. work so we can actually sit with this stuff. So there was a purpose and utility to all that yoga and everything you were doing because there's a preparation to sit with pain that as you can see, is challenging to sit with at times. Absolutely. And I love that whole chapter you've got on being mindful and meditation and mindfulness and stillness. That was amazing. For people, you have to read the book to learn more about that. But can I just tell you one thing I did this morning, the part in the book where you said to wet your face and then just slightly um, towel dry it and then sit for 10 minutes. So I set my, my timer on my phone for 10 minutes to sit and just be still and just notice the sensations. <laughs> the first couple of minutes was okay I was like I don't know what he's talking about I'm going to message him and say there was nothing and then I started to get like this kind of like yeah. feeling to like wipe my nose or like Ugh. and it was so agitating I didn't make 10 minutes just so you know I think I got to about eight <laughs> minutes from like fuck <laughs> to wipe my face <laughs> but thank, um, you, thank you for expressing that because that's exactly why people will read that exercise in the stillness chapter and they're going to be like i don't get why that'll be so hard and then the first two minutes they'll have the same response this is easy yeah. and then and then they start feeling the water molecules drying and that is a very uncomfortable experience oh my god it was so <laughs> uncomfortable <laughs> but you know and then i was thinking am i weak because i can't see through this but i did manage to get to the i was doing breathing i'm like okay i'm, I'm being the yogi i'm being the yogi it's i'm not gonna move i'm not gonna move and then yeah. Bah! <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah that was my effort to that was my attempt to to show how humbling it is for us mm. to really respect and honor how strong these bodily impulse impulses really are so i'm mm. glad that that was the teaching that emerged <laughs> <laughs> yes thank you luke <laughs> <laughs> Um, so your book, Soma Wise, it's also just become a bestseller, hasn't it, on, on Amazon? Yes. Well, yes. As of right now, it's a bestseller on Amazon. It was a number one new release when that it came out. But as it topped the charts in some of the categories, it became a bestseller. So um, wildly surprising and unexpected uh, at the beginning of the year, if someone or, you know, the year ago, if someone told me that, um, People were going to be reading a book that I've written and that people were going to be buying it for their family members for Christmas and the holidays. I would have just said, there's no way that's just a dream that it's not going to happen. And um, it's been a lovely reception to, to read some of the reviews and some of the ways that people are receiving um, the book and the teachings inside of it. 
It's absolutely an amazing, an amazing book. And I recommend it to everybody listening. It's called Soma Wise, Get Out of Your Head, Get Into Your Body by Dr. Luke Snooski. And you can grab that one on Amazon. And tell us also a little bit about your online course that you offer as well, Luke, because that sounds bloody incredible as well. So, so again, Soma Wise is meant to be a guide, right? So people can reference back to, to the book as they engage in their own practices. And my intention was to create a group online coaching program based on the book. And I was you know, going to finish the book and then come out with the program. But as it turned out, the program emerged a year and a half before the book. So I've been running groups now for uh, nearly a year and a half. And it's really the teachings in the book, but done so in a structured 13 or 12 week curriculum with other people around the world. And they're engaging essentially chapter to chapter following the book on an experiential journey with exercises, activities, and practices throughout the 12 weeks that teach people how to connect to their body and really document um, this process of, again, getting better at their own life. Um, every person in the group has a different intention and a different intention for change. So to for others to hear other to hear this reflections and stories from others, to have that accountability from everyone, um, to have, of course, I'm in the group and I'm guiding and facilitating. So it's nice to have that collaborative teaching environment as well. So it's just a, it's just an opportunity to take the words of SomaWise and turn it into an experiential guided facilitated journey. Sounds incredible. So will you send me all the information for that? And I'll put the, all that in the show notes so people can and, and reach out. Do you also do one-on-one work with people, with clients? Yes, I still continue to do some one-on-one work, less so, but there is still, you know, I still do see one-on-ones from time to time. But now that um, SomaWise has emerged, it's, I do enjoy the group work. The way, the way that I perceive myself is that I'm not a long-term therapist. I'm a short-term therapist because my experience has shown me that after the person has the intellectual understandings of what happened to them and they have a better understanding of, of their emotions and their beliefs and their sensations, after that understanding reaches a certain level, then after that, it really is about the work. It really is about the practices and 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 doing that com- that, that committed work. So because CI and you know this from experience, because it is so effective and efficient at unearthing these realizations so quickly, the need for long term therapy really diminished for me. And I found it was almost like a broken record. So the way I communicate with my clients is, listen, uh, you'll you'll see me one on one for one to five sessions, and after that, it's it's really the work, right? It's the work that you put in, and the, and what becomes more important than the time you spend with me, is the time in between sessions. How are you mm. staying connected to your body, and how what are you doing? What are the reflections? What are the processes and the practices and the exercises that you're engaging in in order to make what you've learned in our time together a new lived experience and a new reality for yourself? Mm. What would you say? This is a a coaching question for me and probably other coaches and, and therapists listening to this, when you do suggest ways in which people can connect with themselves and setting up a daily practice and things like mm-hmm. that, but they just don't do it. They just can't bring themselves to do it. It's 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 a challenge and it's hard. And again, this is why um, CI teaches us as coaches and therapists that we hold our clients in unconditional positive regard and we have to trust in their process. So what we don't do is we don't beat ourselves up and we don't beat the client up about it. We get alongside and we help them understand and we're present for that experience. Um, and that is all we can do. 
is show up unconditionally for that person, even though they may not be showing up for themselves. It is not our responsibility to create change. It's our responsibility to be present for them as they choose to change. Mm, so true. So true. So beautiful. Thank you so much, Luke. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I just want to say thank you. What a what a gift it has been to have this interview and have this conversation. I really appreciate um, this entire conversation. So thank you, Danny. Oh, thank you, Luke. And thank you for your amazing offering. I just, I'm going to go back and read it again too, because it's so, so good. I absolutely, I just can't even rate it high enough. I think you need to go on Oprah (laughs) and change the world. That's what you're going to do. (laughs) Thank you, Dave. If if, if it happens, I'll give you credit for planting that seed in the universe. So I'll let you know. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Luke. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.